Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. We are continuing where we left off. Uh, it is um, August 15th, 2021, and we're continuing with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, thought of the week. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This unique group, apostles and apostles and prophets, is a part of the foundation of the church. It is not necessary for the actual people, but the special revelation Christ was able to disclose to them. Apostles and prophets are authorized communication gifts, clearly given by Christ and the Spirit of God to the church. There are a couple of observations we should consider here. Number one, since the church did not exist in the Old Testament, these are the Excuse me? Go ahead, Dave. All right, since the church did not exist in the Old Testament, these founding gifts to the church did not operate until the New Testament. Number two, apostles and prophets are in the foundation of the church and have a distinct purpose for the church. Today, many have taken these titles to themselves while overlooking the true purpose of the church. This reminds me of children playing dress-up and putting on their parents' work clothes. While children, while children dress-up garments are amusing, to try and masquerade as an apostle or prophet is not funny at all. There are now, there are none now, and can now ever be any apostle or prophet today. Period. They laid the foundation of which we stand. However, what the Father was able to do through them stand. We stand on the accomplices. Or our objective is not to continue to lay the foundation, but to come for the faith that was once for all entrusted to this faith. Are you disappointed that I take this stance? Do you fasten yourself as a prophet or apostle? Do you have respected leaders of, in your church who liberally use these titles? More important than all of that is you understand that the unique message of the Father communicated through the gifts of believers. Do you stand on that message? In reading the thought of the week, we know that the gift that Christ given is for pastors to teach us. Some may consider themselves to be called a prophet and apostles, but uh, they really understand the situation that was taken from it in the chapter of Ephesians about the foundation that Christ laid upon and the special gifts. We know that through the church that 
prophesize there is none. The only prophesies we have left is the is the is where the church will be raptured up or resurrection. But for as we know of, there is no prophecy dealing with the church. So dealing with these special gifts, some may take these out of context and use it to play their own purpose of it being lifted up or given something else than what the Bible says. So as, as reading now, he built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We should we should only look at what's been written in the Canada script, not take it upon himself or what has required to it. So I I'm just using this type of thought of the week. I just give it my opinion on this, forgiving to the church. So I just think to the point we have those who are get you give the prayer. I think you said Doug, you gonna do this? Or Bill? Doug. Okay, so we like to hand it Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. So, are there any special requests to be noted before we look to the Lord in prayer? All right, we will continue. Father, thank you so much for this hour that we have with you. we're grateful that we have this time to be able to set aside in our busy lives and and to focus our attention on you. We thank you for your word as has been preserved for us from uh, from its inception to this day. We thank you for those who are atten- in attendance and uh, are part of this church. We, we thank you for the wisdom that... Uh, you have allowed us to see through the spirit of truth. Uh, We are so grateful for the calling that we have received and you chose us before uh, the creation of this world. So Father, also we pray for our present circumstances and we know we're in the world and we know that in this world we will have trouble but we are to take comfort and peace that you have overcome the world and that the joy that we have in Christ is the solace that we have in this world. So we thank you for uh, those who may be in other nations that are believers, that are part of our body and our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray for them they will continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, Father, we pray for those who are sick among us. We ask, Father, that you would heal them if it be according to your perfect will. Uh, those in, questions are, are in question are Lenora, and, uh, who is Dave's daughter, and uh, Kenny, who is my brother-in-law. Father, a special prayer for them, asking that you would attend to them as they are on our hearts. So we, we cast our care upon you at this hour. All these things we ask, Father, as we open the message that is there for us today, we pray for wisdom and humility as we approach your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
All right. So what we have before us is um, a couple verses in John chapter 16. So you should have some notes. Uh, John 16, 21 and 22. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that a child is born into the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. So with your, in your notes, the disciples are those who were close to Jesus. Uh, and, and those who were close to Jesus had the hardest time with the period of his death, his life, death, and resurrection. He constantly reminded them of his soon departure, and at the same time displaying miraculous signs and wonders of which the world had never seen. They invested everything in the person of Christ, and it sounded more and more like their commitment would have been, may have been, misplaced. How could they survive this? They had to go back to their families, disgraced, shunned, and persecuted. The fear and pain must have been suffocating. They put all their trust in Christ. And was this a mistake? Quote, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I would think there is certainly no shame in that. So we, we will take a look at these verses. Um, we will begin with point one. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. So the first thought is we have an analogy here. For sure, childbirth is associated with pain. The pain the disciples would have when Jesus had to die and die on the cross. So notice that's the analogy. It is likened until uh, when we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that because, obviously, um, we covered a lot in previous verses, but still there is more to say in these couple more uh, verses that we have. So this analogy perfectly describes the, the pain, the travail, the labor that the disciples had to go through. And it was certainly something that they were emotionally uh, in tune with, right? They were under, understandably upset because of some of the things that Christ said. Now, more, they may have rejected the fact that Christ is saying he's going to die on the cross, which is horrible in and of itself. But an, another great thought that distressed them was the fact that he was leaving. He was going away. He was going to the Father. 
And that was hard for them to understand. They could not get the, the thought that, okay, Christ, you're going to die, but then you're going away, you're leaving us, you're going to the Father. So those two things, the fact that he would, he would die in such a brutal way, and the fact that he was leaving them, that he was going to the Father, distressed them greatly. So point B, having witnessed labor, I can tell you about my experience. Well, well, since I have seen the analogy of childbirth up close and personal, I can tell you that it is tough. It is rough for the woman uh, from my perspective. <laughs> A woman might say, well, it's not so bad. I don't know of any that said that, but... I'm sure there may be some, but I can tell you from me looking on, it's tough. I mean, the, the labor, the cramps started coming and the labor pains and uh, they're so many minutes apart and then it becomes less and less minutes apart, more intense, more uh, troublesome for the woman. Uh, and, you know, the worst part about it is for me, is there's nothing I can do to help. There's nothing I can do to relieve this. In fact, the, the, the uh, caregivers that are there are so patient and understanding of the pain that the woman is going through. And they just comfort, all they could do is comfort her. Yeah, they say, I'm having pain. And, and the caregiver says, yes, I know, you can handle it. It's okay, this is normal. <laughs> They can't stop the pain either. So it becomes a matter of stress and anguish. So I, especially for me, I, it's hard for me to, to listen to it where I can't do anything about it. So I don't know firsthand what it is to have a baby, but I have seen several born up close and personal. And I can tell you it is just like it says here. It's painful. It is the birthing process. So point C is not only that, but pain is also expected in the birthing process. The travail is a part of the human experience. So for that, we'll go, we'll go to the scripture right there in Genesis 3.16, where it was first mentioned. Uh, Genesis 3.16 says, To the woman, he said, this is after the fall and God's confronting each one who had a part in it. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So this, this verse, if, if it says anything at all, what you should make sure you understand is that there's going to be painful labor for women. And sure enough, so this analogy you will find is carried forward in a lot of other verses. Uh, but to note, it started right here. And this is before any uh, children were born to the first couple, that this would happen. Uh, so imagine this expectation of pain that the woman had to go through. 
So, so that's part of the human experience from there on. So every person you see today, all you got to do is look around. Every person that is born into the world, doesn't matter what race, what, what gender, not what gender, doesn't matter what race, what country you're from or what part of the world, whether you're rich or poor, this is the reality of childbirth. And uh, now, of course, they have things today that... Uh, can, what, what do they call it, epidural, which can numb a woman from, from waist down, and, and they might not feel it, but uh, nonetheless, that's modern technology, but the pain of childbirth is still there. So, um, point D, if Jesus could, give, could, could have given them a way out of the pain, he would have. He loved them, but they would have to go through this pain, just as he would have to go, just as he had to go to the cross. Um, so, when we think about the pain, we're, we're talking about childbirth as an analogy to this. But what we want to see is that this relates. We'll make sure we we stay with the context written here, and we want to make sure we understand this relates to that what the disciples had to go through. And losing Jesus, seeing him again, and all of that, and him ascending to the Father. This is, was tough for the disciples. Uh, to, at first, they were confused. They didn't understand what was going on. But yet, they had to go through it. And that's the anguish that is related to this whole story that we've been reading. So point E, other... Um, labor analogies to note. <clears throat> if we look at Jeremiah 30, 6 and through 7, let's look at that. Jeremiah 30, 6 through 7, we see this analogy is used again, but not necessarily for what we see here. Let's see. Uh, uh, let's, maybe we should go back uh, to 3. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from, the captiv from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. No one will be like it. Uh, no other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. So this is what Jesus is saying. But notice it again is after this tribulation or this great pain period that Israel will go through before they will uh, be restored to their uh, their land and so forth. So so notice <clears throat> that is important to note that other there are other tough times in human history that are, and this is yet to come, where the birthing analogy is used. 
Christ uses it here for what the disciples are getting ready to go through. Uh, but you see it's used in Jeremiah for the tribulation and restoring Israel to the land. Here in Revelation 12, 2 through 5, let's go there. Revelation 12, uh, 2 through 5 says, She was pregnant and, well, we should start at 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. So that, she, so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So notice it is, again, with reference to some of the experiences of Israel and how uh, God created Israel, the woman with the 12 stars, uh, but she was pregnant. She was about ready to give birth, and uh, she gave birth to a male child, and that was Jesus. And again, the analogy of the woman in travail is used. And I didn't pick all the scriptures. There's others that you could have used if you'd like to look those up. But just to note, there are there are other passages of Scripture. <clears throat> Point F, the analogy is not physical pain, but it is related to mental and emotional pain. So in our analogy, where the disciples were getting ready to go through this, it was related not to some literal labor. Labor is physical pain and travail and anguish that the woman is going through, physically speaking. Her body is going through changes. But this was not any physical changes for the disciples. It was mental and emotional anguish. That's the pain that they were going to face. Uh, it was a different type of pain, travail. But notice... It has very similar circumstances to the birth analogy. Point number two in our, our notes is, uh, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So, again, he's talking about the disciples. So, so point A is, when her baby is born... This is analogous to the disciples seeing the risen Christ for the first time. So if I look at John 20, 19 through 24, let's look at that. <clears throat> John chapter 20. Is that right? That doesn't look right. Oh, I'm in the wrong place. Sorry. Stand by. John chapter 20, 
19. <clears throat> On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, this is John 20, 19, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So notice, even though the women had come and and told the disciples and all of that, they were still not sure about who Jesus, whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, after all, in their mind, listen, it was terrible what happened. We saw him die. So for us, we kind of, uh, it's going to take a little bit more for me to, 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 for Peter and James and John and Thomas and all of them to come around to this. So what did Jesus have to do? He had to appear where the doors were locked. He didn't come and knock on the door. He came and in the midst of them, he just appeared. <clears throat> so he stood among them and he, and he spoke. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. In other words, he knew that there was a continuity between when they they pounded the nails in his hands and and they pierced his side with the spear. All of this the disciples saw. Right? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is their reaction. This is what it, the analogy where it says... Uh, they forget the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. They forget completely about all that had happened because they see Jesus alive and they were overjoyed. Now, when he showed them his hands and feet, that was enough for them to realize, wait a minute, we're not seeing a ghost. This is not some vision that we're seeing. We're literally seeing the Lord. And, uh, and so... Again, Jesus said, peace, this is verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father hath sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is not Pentecost. This is what was given them to strengthen them in uh, what had just happened. They had gone through a tremendous time. A terrible time, a time where they almost fragmented and lost everything. So he gives them the spirit to strengthen them. And this is the spirit in the way he was given in the Old Testament. He wasn't given to everyone, he was given to some. And, and that for special purposes of God. What special purposes were these 11 uh, ready to receive? And this is, <laughs> they were going to become the apostles to the church. And remember, the church is God's eternal purpose. That God chose us in him before the creation of the world. So yes, the disciples, from the time of the resurrection of Christ, where, they, where Christ appeared to them, to Pentecost, they receive strengthening from God. And this is receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are, are not forgiven. In other words, the authority that the church has on the earth is the same authority 
that Christ had when he was on the earth. Could Christ forgive sins? Yes. Could the church forgive sins? Absolutely. And when it says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. What it is to say is we, we literally are nothing. We don't have power. God forgives the sins, but we are in the place or the image of God on the earth. So this is why it says, if we, we have the authority on earth, and what does that mean? It means that we, we can preach the gospel and that, and that we are, are the source of God, uh, his, his church in the world, right? There's no Israel who had that function before where people would go to Israel. Uh, which they had the elaborate uh, sacrifice, animal sacrifice services. And if a person wanted forgiveness of God, they would go to Israel. But now, God's representative on the earth is the church. So whatever the church says and w w administers in the earth, that is what God is doing right now in the church. We have all authority. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the forgiveness comes from God. It's just that God has allowed the church to be in that position. So we're continuing with the thought. So, um, oh, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So to note... Um, so Thomas wasn't there. Now, we're not going to read the whole story about Thomas, but Thomas declared that he would not, uh, he, he declared he would not believe until he saw Christ and that he would examine him personally. He says, I want to put my hands in, in his fingers, in his, put, put my fingers in, in the nail holes of his hand and his side. Thomas is saying, unless I can do that, then I don't believe you. So the next week, what happened? Christ appeared, said the same thing, peace be with you. And he said directly to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach your, your hand into, into my side and, and, and stop doubting. I'm here, Thomas. So did Thomas actually do that? We don't know, but I would think not. I think he just crumbled before Christ and said, my Lord and my God, just, I, it was, can you imagine? Jesus was there when Thomas said those arrogant things. And yet Thomas continued to be ordained as a disciple. He received the gift. Christ literally gave Thomas the gift of apostleship. So that's just a note. So back to our notes, point B. When this event happens, it is truly miraculous. A new life born into the world, and this changes everything. So when, when you witness the analogy side of it, the woman, when she finally does give birth, and that child comes out of the womb, that new life is now born into the world. And that changes everything. The whole room changes when you're in there and so it is the analogy fit when they saw the person of Christ everything changed Thomas crumbled down in verse 2028 20, my Lord and my God 
he that it was over the pain, the anguish, right? Everything now was some. There was something new before them, and so that's a perfect analogy for what was happening uh, with those disciples. Point C: She forgets the anguish, and this is immediate, right? And so with the analogy, when she, she forgets the anguish, the anguish stops. The the wife or the the woman goes through and sees that child and it's all over no more pain no more worrying for all those months now they are holding a living baby a new life into the world and it's immediate it's not like okay after 5 years then the woman gets this no the moment that child is born that's when it happens. When a baby is born, the labor pain is over. When they saw Jesus alive, the pain, the fear, the confusion was over. And it all made perfect sense. That's the analogy. They saw Jesus. They, they were overjoyed, as we read earlier. And Christ says, examine me. Check me out. Make sure that I'm, I am who you know that I am. Whether they did it or not, or whether they saw the nail prints in his hands, just like he showed them and all that, they were convinced, and it all made perfect sense now. All the things that Jesus had told them about what would happen. Now they put it all together. Point D, because of the joy... That a because of the joy that a child is born into the world, this is analogous to the risen Christ and the disciples' new confidence in Christ. Imagine what that must have done for their confidence. See, before they were going to have to go cowering and shrinking back to their families and probably would be uh, barred from the synagogue and shunned from family and friends and they would have to go into, you know, into the corners, into the darkness. Now, instead, Christ is risen. It is new wind beneath their wings now. They go out with their chest out, proud to be part of who Christ is now. And understanding that everything he said was true. The signs, the wonders, the miracles were evidence that he, that God was with him. So... We're continuing in our notes, point number three. So with you, now is your time of grief. Grief, so with you. So the analogy is on target. That's what we can know, that Jesus makes this analogy and he's relating it directly to the disciples. The disciples will go through a time of grief, uncertainty, fear, and shame. All of this was true of what the, they were behind the doors, locked, as it says in, uh, in verse 19, 2019, John 29th, on the evening, the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked. Why? For fear of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders would have caught them. They would have had them crucified as well. So it was for them tenuous. We're worried. If somebody would have knocked on the door, they probably would have been all quiet like it was a Jehovah's Witness or something at the door. No, I'm kidding. But th this is how the disciples were afraid. 
they were any little creaking. I'm sure they would have said, "Quiet, quiet! What was that noise? Somebody coming up here?" So Jesus had to appear in the room right before them, literally. Yeah. So it is with you. That analogy, we're on target with what our interpretation is because we're just following what Jesus is saying here. I have termed this the emotional roller coaster. That's what I've looked at this as. Uh, and we talked about it before. I'm going to use Luke 24, 18 through 21 to illustrate it a little bit more. Luke 24, 18 through 21. This is those who are on the road to Emmaus. I just want to sh show. One of them, Cleophas, asked him, and this is after Jesus came alongside of him and said, what are you guys talking about? I see they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And, and then, uh, so he says, one of them named Cleophas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? In other words, this was the biggest thing that ever happened. I mean, this thing was big. Everybody, I mean, even children probably know what happened. It, it, it was that big. All the people everywhere were so aware of what had happened. And so that's why this is his remark against to, to, the, to whom... They don't know it's just some stranger, but it's really Jesus. So Jesus says, what things? He asks in verse 19. And then he tells them about Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. So notice how they revered him. They understood that God was with this person. The chief priest, they continue, the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. They, they killed him. But, but notice verse 21. But we had hoped that, we, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So what was happening um, is th their hopes were dashed. All of what they had invested in thinking and following Christ, all of a sudden, now they're saying, we're going to have to rethink this. We had hoped that he was the one. And, and notice their talk about redeeming Israel, they had on their hearts just things of men, just like Peter and the disciples did. They were, they were thinking Jesus was going to go ahead and restore Israel at this time. They didn't know anything about the church age. Or what would have happened next. Now, of course, if the church age were not a part of human history, yes, that would have happened next. But it did not because God was going to call out many sons into glory. So that's his timing that we need to make sure we pay attention to. And how do we know to pay attention? Through signs, wonders, and various miracles given by the Spirit. That's how we know God is in it. So, in any case, uh, so in addition, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, verse 22, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So notice, 
this is the general confusion, uh, things that they were not sure of. Uh, their minds were swirling around with all these different thoughts. Could he be? No, he couldn't. He was killed. Uh, and then these women are running around with these rumors. I like what Christ has said in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And this is true of not only those who are on the road to Emmaus, but us as well. It's like God has to tell us ten times before something happens. Before we finally understand. I could say the same thing. How slow I was to believe in salvation by grace. Alone. Never mind the mystery and all the plan of God and how to what his timing was. But we certainly can identify with those on the road to Emmaus because we go through emotional roller coasters ourselves. So anyway, we're going back to our notes because of time. Point B in our notes, to note, the church could not be born without this travail. So I like, I could throw in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, on this rock, on the confession that Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On this rock, I will build my church. Ephesians 2, 13 through 15 as well, we'll turn there, should support what we're saying about the church. Ephesians 2, 13 says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, through the death of Christ, right? This is what God is able to do through the work of Christ when he was here on the earth. But on the what people don't realize is through that God was doing something uh, what we call calling out those many sons into glory. God was going to use the death of Christ so that that would be a platform for us to be uh, conformed into his image. Uh, Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, when there's two groups of Jews and Gentiles, one, he made of the two, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. It should be man out of the two, thus making peace. So one new humanity is more than that. It's what Jews and Gentiles are together. There's something new here. It's not just Jews, not just Gentiles. It's one new man. That is in Christ. Uh, If anyone is in Christ, as we know, they are a new creation. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 10, Give no offense to the Jews, the Greeks, nor the church of God. So three designations now of peoples. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but what God has done here is made one new man. So notice it came out of adversity. Gentiles did not have a plan. Uh, they, <clears throat> they were just recipients of salvation. But now Jews and Gentiles together in one body are a part of God's eternal purpose. 
So this is the thought. So the church, even if we were to extend the analogy even further, are, is born as a result of the apostles becoming the foundation of the church. So the disciples will become apostles. This is point C in our analogy. Uh, they will become apostles in the founding or the foundation of the church. And this is verse uh, Ephesians 3. If we look at Ephesians 3 and verses 7 and 8, this is where Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace is given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. So Paul became an apostle and the apostle for the church. So whatever we think about the disciples, and you know, this is interesting uh, to me that when we think about church history and biblical accuracy, uh, God tells it like it is. A lot of what we are reading about these disciples and around the, this time uh, was sort of shameful. When history goes to record things or legends, they kind of make everything, they whitewash it to make everybody look like they were the champions and the best and the heroes and this and that. Well, not so with the church. It shows exactly what happened. I mean, even down to Peter's denial of Christ when, you know, he says, I will die for you. I will never leave you. And Christ says, you, you don't know it, Peter, but you're going to deny me three times before morning. So all of this is horrible when you think about it. This is not a good look for the disciples. However, this is what happened. This is what we see. This is the record. And just to note, what happened to these men? And I even gave Thomas, who says, I won't believe it. I don't care if, if the other ten are saying, I believe it. It doesn't matter. I won't believe it until I personally see the nail prints in his hands and stick my finger in them, literally. How gross is that? And, and he, Thomas is a disciple, a, an apostle of the church. And this is when we read in uh, God has established Jesus, uh, apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone for the church. Thomas is one of those apostles. So we, we should just recognize, yes, God shows the whole story is not couched in some glorious uh, flowery language that just makes the disciples look like they're some kind of heroes. It shows everything about their failings, their humanity, how they felt that they didn't understand. But that's not the point. It, it also gives us hope. Right? It helps us understand that we're not perfect as we approach this. We fall, we fall, we fail, but we get back up and we keep on going because uh, we know that Christ who was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead no matter what. We have confidence in Christ. Point number four, we're moving into it. 
it says, uh, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. This is, these are some fantastic words. Point A, after witnessing Jesus' brutal death, the disciples did not think they would ever see Jesus alive again. This is Luke 24, back, back to Luke 24. Um, and this is uh, verses 1 through 12. We won't read the whole thing, but I'll skim over it. On the first day of the week, the woman, uh, very early in the morning, the woman took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes, in, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, women bowed. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, "Why do you look for the living among the dead?" So, the women had no inkling, no clue that Christ was not dead. In their minds, they were coming to anoint the body of Christ. So. When they finally went back uh, to the disciples to tell them of what they had seen and what the angels had told them. Um, verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. However, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen Linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. He didn't go away thinking, he's risen. He went away thinking, now I'm really confused. I just don't understand. But notice, the fact that Christ being raised from the dead was not necessarily a possibility for Peter. It wasn't. It was, in his mind, I'm confused. I don't know what could have happened. In fact, once Christ died, once they saw him die such a brutal death, they would never have thought that Jesus Christ would be alive again. So that was, that was the rejoicing that when they finally saw him alive. Point B, joy comes through travail. Hebrews 12, 2 says, just says, exactly says, For the joy set before him, he despised the cross, scorning its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. So Christ had joy, but it was through suffering. It wasn't just, hey, I just got joy. Joy, 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 joy. He had joy through travail as well. He was not spared the cross and to get to the joy. And then also in Luke, what are we saying here? He said the same thing. He says, um, verse Luke 24, 26, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now he's unfolding the truth to these on the road to Emmaus. So joy comes through pain. And that's exactly what happened not only to the disciples who they had to go through the death the burial to get to the resurrection of christ 
So point C as we're getting ready to close, no one will take away your joy. This is this phrase. One, uh, once the disciples saw and examined the risen Christ, and this is 20, uh, 20, which we saw when they saw, we read already, and then 27 where Thomas examined him as well. They had a joyful boldness that could not be tempered. And this is so. I mean, it changed the disciples forever. Uh, if we read Acts chapter 5, I want to go there. So we have a little time. Acts chapter 5. I just want, remember, they were locked behind the door for fear of the Jewish leaders. I mean, that's what we saw earlier in chapter 20. Uh, John chapter 20. But here, by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, verse 36, let's look at this through 42. Um, you know the story. Sometime, and this is uh, Gamaliel. He is a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. So verse 36 because they discussed it, right? This is what he was saying to them while they were inside. Some time ago, Thedius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all the followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, here's another example, this uh, person is giving, Gamaliel. He says... Um, after, after This is verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, in which he's talking about these disciples running around talking about Jesus, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose of activity is of human origin... It will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now notice that's what it is. When you fight, this, this guy was, was smart to recognize this. And uh, I would imagine, you know, he began to see that their movement was not something that was a flash in the pan. It was for real. So you are fighting against God. His speech, verse 40, persuaded them. They called the apostles in, now notice, and had them flogged. You know what that means? It's, small, it's, only, it's only four words, and had them flogged. But boy, I can imagine. It hurt. It, each of them were whipped with a cat of nine tails. This is not just something, okay, by the time they admonished, he called them in and they admonished them. No, they called them in and had them whipped, stripped and whipped. And then they ordered them, listen, they didn't, say, they didn't ask them, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. That's interesting. What is the, the apostles' response? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They recognized who they were with boldness. They approached 
how they conducted themselves and how they their outlook on life changed. Everything changed once Jesus, once they saw Jesus raised from the dead. So what happened after that? Day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so I just let you know where they stood, how they understood it, and, and how they managed it. So this is uh, part of it. Um, it. Nothing they could say would stop their boldness, would, even if they're going to get them together and beat them and you know, order them what to do, nothing would stop their boldness. We're going to close with this point D. We all have an abiding confidence and assurance from our risen Lord. I'm going to go to 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll just look at these 51 through 58. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll start at 51. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And this is, to me, a declaration of independence from death. Where, well, as it continues, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And this is after the resurrection. We ha death has no longer any hold on us. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So when it says sin and the law here, the sting of death is sin, it's saying that uh, every person born in Adam is destined to die. Like it says in Hebrews, it is appointed to man uh, once to die. And then after that, the judgment. So that's death. That death is in everybody's calendar. If it's not, it should be. And there's going to be a small group of people who are left and remain until the coming of the Lord. So if that's not you, death is on your calendar. The sting of death, the fear of death, is knowing that all of us are going to die at some point. And the power of of sin is the law. When we say the law, that is reflective of God's righteousness. What is the law? Law is a reflection of who God is. And the only way God can reconcile man is that man go through this death so that God can give them life. And so when we think about those who are on the other side, because that's what he just said, the perishable must be clothed with imperishable and mortal with immortality. That's what he's talking about. 
And once we get to that point, we are past that. So death has no power over us anymore. We should have the confidence. Even though we are still in the midst of it, God is saying to you, for sure, this is true of you. Verse 57, but, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can have the boldness in this life to just go ahead and wholeheartedly give ourselves to God. No matter what the world says, no matter, no fearing what any man or any institution or any religion says. God has given us this information which goes beyond death. We're not, we don't have to worry about or fear any man. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, be unmovable, be steadfast. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the Lord, the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this is perfect for how we should conduct ourselves while we're here in the world with the confidence of knowing who we are in Christ and what Christ has done. He has conquered death and the fear of death. So we don't have anything to worry about in this world. No matter what happens, either death nor life nor things present or things to come or anything else will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to have to close with that. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this assurance that we have. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace when times do get tough in this world, when there is trouble, and we can find help and mercy in times of need. So we thank you for those who are here, Father, and we thank you for the wisdom that belongs to us the confidence that was forged by Christ himself and that we now have. And we saw in those early disciples who became apostles to the church. We stand on their foundation. We trust that you have delivered your will, purpose, and plan through them and that this is what we preach. So we thank you, Father, for this message. We thank you for this calling. And we pray for those all around the world, Father, who are holding up the name of Christ. All of this we ask in his precious name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.